You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Please turn now in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes in the ninth chapter. And we're going to read together before we begin verses 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 18. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I I, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are enslaved at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to this passage of Scripture and help us to see in it what you would have for us to see. Teach us wisdom from Solomon and from your word. Help us to appreciate all the wisdom that is found in Christ, the divine wisdom that you have made available in your word. And we pray that you would incline our hearts to your word that we may hear it, heed it, and obey it for the glory of Christ our King. We ask these things in his name. Amen. One of the things that frustrated Solomon as he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and he comes back to it time and again is the uncertainty of life, the seeming inequities of life. And you see this and you experience this and you know it. Things don't always work out the way that we want. They don't always work out the way that we expect it. Sometimes things happen and we just we look at it and we say, who, who would have expected that? Who would have thought that that's how that would have turned out? Uh, given the origin of this, we've never expected the conclusion to be this way. The way that Solomon expresses that is found at the end of verse 11, where he says that time and chance overtake them all. That's Solomon's way of expressing from a human perspective, from an earthly vantage point under the sun, the uncertainty that seems to strike all of life's endeavors. And we have looked at this a number of times on previous occasions where Solomon has said similar things. He will say something like, whether it's this that befalls you or that that befalls you, no man knows. And he has lamented time and again that nobody knows the future. You do this and you expect X result, but that result doesn't come. And there seems to be sometimes no connection between what is done and how it happens to that individual. And this frustrated Solomon. That, 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 that's life under the sun. He said on another occasion, we looked at that just looked at that just a couple of weeks ago, where he said, sometimes it happens to the righteous according to the deeds of the wicked. And sometimes it happens to the wicked according to the deeds of the righteous. That's exasperating. But that is life under the sun. And that's one of the things that is so frustrating about life is that you not all you cannot all the time guarantee a certain outcome. Now, we're looking today at verses 11 through 7 through 18, and we're going to get all the way through this the entire rest of chapter 9 here. And I want you to understand how these verses and what we're about to see is connected to what has come before. 
Up at the beginning of chapter 9, Solomon reminded us of the inevitability of death. We're all going to die. That's the one thing that life has in store for every single one of us, that we're going to die. We all know for certain that death is going to overtake us. And even as we sit here right now, death, like a net, is closing in on each and every one of us. We don't like to think about that. We don't like to admit that. But that is reality. That's the one thing that is certainly going to strike each and every one of us. At some point in our life, we're going to experience death. That is a certainty. In light of that, Solomon says, you ought to enjoy your food, enjoy your bread, enjoy your wine, enjoy your wife, enjoy your festivities and your celebrations and your nice clothes and your scented oils. Enjoy the work that God has given to you and do it with all of your might. Do it with all that you have in your hand. Everything that, everything that you hold, everything that is at your disposal, live life in that way. Not because an outcome is guaranteed from living life that way, but you are to live life that way because you're going to die. There's, as he says at the end of verse 10, there is no planning or knowledge or wisdom or activity in Sheol where you're going. You live with all of your might while you're here because you're going to go somewhere else to Sheol. And then once you're there, you can't do anything that is here. So while you are here, be here with all that you are. That's the idea. While you're here, be here with all that you are. Live life to the fullest. Now we would ask, getting to the end of verse 10, if I live life that way, if I spend myself and I live with all that is in my hand and I apply myself and I, I work as unto the Lord with diligence, fervently doing all that I can for the glory of God, expending myself in this life in view of my coming death, is there some guarantee? Is there some guaranteed outcome to that? And the answer is no, there's not. So verse 11 comes in. Look at verse 11. I saw unto the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability. Live with all your might. Spend everything you have. Put your hand to it. Do it with all your strength, all of your capacity, all of your authority, all of your wealth, all of your influence, everything you have to bring to the task. Go for it. Is there a guarantee? Nope. The race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the strong. No guarantees in life. It's uncertain. It might fall out this way. It might fall out that way. You have no guarantees in life. That's the frustration of verse 11. The other, now, the other connection with this passage, with what has come before, is the mention of death in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Moreover, man does not know this his time, like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared in an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. So this whole passage all kind of flows together, right? We are to, we're going to die, so we live with all of our might. If we live with all of our might, there's no guarantees. But you still live with all of your might, not because there's a guaranteed outcome, but because you're going to die. And that should not exasperate us. It should not make us fall into any kind of a fatalism, a fatalistic mentality where we just throw up our hands and say, well, whatever's going to be is going to be. Rather, we are to live life, and, and, and at the end of it all, Solomon is going to commend to his wisdom. So here's our outline for today. In verses 11 and 12, Solomon bemoans the uncertainty of life. And there's a reason why life is uncertain, and again, it has to do with death. And then in verses 13 to 15, he gives us an illustration of the uncertainty of life, and, then in, and he commends to us wisdom. And then in verse 16 and 18, it is a full-fledged commendation of wisdom. Right? This is how life is going to be. It is uncertain. Here's an example of that uncertainty. So what do we do in light of that uncertainty? We walk in the path of wisdom. And again, Solomon commends wisdom to us. So let's look first of all at Solomon bemoaning the uncertainties of life in verses 11 and 12. We'll read them again together. I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. That, there he's describing the suddenness with which death can seize upon us. Like a bird trapped in a snare. Like a fish caught in a net. 
It is unexpected and it is sudden. Now this is one of the frustrating things of living life in a fallen world. The things don't always work out the way that we might expect them. And Solomon gives us five examples of that in verse 11. Five examples. Look at each of them for just a second. And we're going to go through these twice. I want to show you what we ought to expect from each one of these and then how each one of these doesn't give us what we ought to expect. What would you expect from the fastest runner in the race? You would naturally anticipate the fastest runner in the race is going to win the race, right? You put Hussein Bolt up against me. Who do you expect to win? You would expect Hussein Bolt to win that race, right? But if Hussein Bolt had the stomach flu the night before and he pulled a hamstring warming up that morning and he rolled his ankle on the way out to the racetrack and then he threw up and vomited right before he was ready to to launch off of the starting gate and then he tripped over a pebble or something and scuffed up his face and was momentarily knocked unconscious, I would win that race. But the race is not always to the swiftest person in the race. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. We expect it to. We expect that the best team in the contest is going to win the championship. That's what we expect. We expect that the fastest runner is going to win the race. The strongest man is going to win the competition. The best athlete is going to get the trophy. That's what we naturally anticipate. Now, it doesn't always work out that way, does it? Because as, as football fans like to say, that's why we play the game. Because any given Sunday... It doesn't necessarily cash out that way. Second, how about the battle is to the warriors? We naturally expect that the strongest army with the best technology and the best soldiers and the best discipline has an advantage over a weaker army. That's what we expect to happen. That's why armies train and that's why they're disciplined. That's why they're well-funded. That's why they, that's why they plan and prepare and do what they do. And their soldiers are the best and our soldiers are the best in the world. We expect that the, the better fighting force is going to win the war. And then we expect that the, Uh, Number three, that bread goes to the wise man. We expect that the wise man has some sort of an advantage in this life that he can turn to a personal profit. And bread being the staple of life, the, the basic necessities, we expect that the wise people are going to be the ones who end up having this world's goods. Further, we expect, in verse 11, that the discerning man is going to have a wealth. The wealth and prosperity will come to the one who is able to see a business opportunity that others do not. He is able to discern pitfalls that others cannot see. And so he will be able to take his natural ability to discern and see good deals and he may be able to turn that into some sort of a profit and accumulate some degree of wealth by it. We expect that that's going to happen. And then further, verse 11, we expect that men of ability will be shown favor and honor. That people who have natural giftedness and talents and natural abilities will be honored among men. Now those are the things that we expect to have happen, but human ability is no guarantee of success. So let's go back through all five of these and ask ourselves if we can think of illustrations where this hasn't happened this way. First, beginning of verse 11, how about the race is not to the swift? Can you think of examples where the slower person has won the race? The lesser team has won the victory? Football fans know this happens every single Sunday where a less equipped, a less less talented team can beat a team that is better than them. Sometimes that happens. The race is not always to the swift. There's an example of this from the Old Testament that Solomon would have been very familiar with. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 2. And the setting of it, let me set up the setting of it, and then I'll read you the passage. The setting of it was right at the end of the death of Saul, when David had been anointed king, and the kingdom had been guaranteed to be given to the house of David. 
And so David was going to be king, and the house of Saul had a hard time getting, letting go of that power and that influence. And so there was something of sort of a civil war struggle that lasted for only a, a brief period of time, where the house of Saul tried to hold on to that power, and the house of David continued to grow and expand and win victory after victory after victory. So 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 17, refers to a battle that was taking place between the house of Saul and the house of David. 2 verse 17 says, That day the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel, and Asahel was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles which is in the field. Remember this story? Asahel was quick. It's almost as if there's nobody in the land of Israel that could outrun Asahel. And if Asahel wanted to catch you, Asahel could take you down. He could outrun you. He was as quick-footed as one of the gazelles in the field. So here's what it says. Asahel pursued Abner and did not turn to the right or to the left from following Abner. And Abner was in David's household. He was one of David's men. And Asahel was pursuing him. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. So Abner said to him, Turn to your right or to your left and take hold of one of the young men for yourself and take for yourself his spoil. But Asahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. Abner repeated again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? So... So Asahel was chasing after him, and he was overcoming him, and Abner was trying to tell him, turn to the right, turn to the left, find some other person to take down. Don't come after me because I'm going to have to strike you to the ground. But Asahel was, had the advantage. He was the faster runner. However, it says, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died on the spot, and it came about that all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. So what did Abner do? I'm presuming he shoved the spear into the ground and did something against an obstacle that Asahel, who was right behind him, ran onto and impaled himself on the spear. The race is not necessarily the swiftest man, is it? No, by his cunning, by his thoughtfulness, by his creativity, Abner ended up overcoming Asahel. The race is not always to the swift. Sometimes your team loses because your quarterback suffers a game-ending injury in the first quarter, or he's out for a couple of weeks and you miss the playoffs for that reason, and a bunch of you watch as one inferior team after another comes in and beats your team like a tied-up goat, and it's week after week you see that happening because you're because they're not necessarily as strong as they... They're all, overall, they're the better team, but they can't put it together. You ever seen that happen? You ever seen your team lose, the better team lose because of a bad call from the ref? That frustrates you, right? We've all seen the Seahawks steal more than one game in a season just off of the bad calls of a ref, right? No amens? I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, apparently. And the battle is not necessarily to the strong, either. There are examples of this in history, all kinds of examples where inferior forces have, have stolen the battle from superior forces. There's an example of this that Solomon would have been really familiar with. David and Goliath. Is the battle to the strongest in that situation? No, but God was for David. That's all you needed. And David took down Goliath. The battle is not to the warrior. David wasn't a warrior. He was a shepherd boy with a sling and a bunch of rocks. And he took down the mightiest and the greatest army that was oppressing them at the time and their mightiest and their greatest warrior, Goliath. There are all kinds of examples of that happening in history. Um, Israel, 1967, the Six-Day War. Do you know the story behind that? Five nations, less than two decades after Israel was declared a nation, this young little upstart nation, five, uh, two decades after that, five nations came against them. Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, Jordan, and Iraq. Those five nations were backed by eight other nations. 
who were also allied and, co- and, and in a coalition with those five nations. Those five nations came against the nation of Israel in June of 1967. We just celebrated the 50th anniversary of that war with the intent of driving them into sea and finishing the Holocaust that Hitler had started. That was the goal, to wipe out the Jewish nation. And what happened? The Jews beat them again like a tied-up goat, all of their enemies. To say that they were outnumbered, outgunned, outmanned, outtechnologied is to way vastly underestimate. Uh, That is the greatest understatement you could make. The number of tanks, the number of men, the number of aircraft, everything, they were outnumbered. Five nations to one. That war lasted six days. That's why they call it the Six-Day War. It lasted six days. And as a result of that, Israel took the Golan Heights. They took the West Bank. They took uh, the uh, Sinai Peninsula, the city of Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip. Now, some of that land they have given back. But they not only defended themselves and beat off their enemies, but they also not, not only pushed them back, but they conquered them and conquered land, much of which they still control to this day. And because of the Six-Day War, they seized the city of Jerusalem, which the Jewish nation still controls to this day. The battle's not to the strong, is it? Not always. Can you explain to me why a bunch of colonialists from 13 colonies in 1776 could defend and beat back the world's strongest, most well-equipped, and most powerful army on the planet? How does that happen? A bunch of farmers with pitchforks, businessmen, clergy, no standing military, no navy, no standing army at all, just a bunch of people with muskets, and they pushed back and defended and overcame the largest army on the face of the planet, the most well-funded fighting force that, that man had ever seen up to that point? Can you explain to me how that happens? The battle's not to the strong, is it? You would have, if, you had, if you had put bets on who was going to win that war, you would have never bet on 13 colonies. If you had put bets on who was going to win the war, Six-Day War in 1967, you would have never bet on the Jewish people. But the battle is not necessarily the strong. And the third thing there, look at the bread is not necessarily to the wise either. Can you think of people who are wealthy, who have a lot of this world's goods, who are some of the most foolish people you've ever met in your entire life? Just I'll, I'll, You don't have to answer it. You don't have to say, you know... Anybody in particular, I won't even ask you to do that, but just think in your mind. I'm sure you can come up with a few. A few people who you look at and you say, how did that individual come up with that? How did he acquire that much stuff? Being as foolish as he is. He's not wise at all. He has none of God's wisdom, and yet he's wealthy beyond our description. Uh, beyond description. How about wealth to the discerning? You may think that you have the best stock pick. You may think that you have the best plan to navigate the market. And then one downturn... One bad decision, one bad investment, and somebody goes from being a millionaire to being a pauper and having nothing. Right? Wealth is not necessarily to the discerning. Neither is favor to men of ability. It's not necessarily the most able people that are the most renowned and recognized among us. Sometimes favor and honor goes to people who have no ability, while people who have ability are not honored and not even recognized or known at all. When I was in third year Bible college, we did a a missions trip to a nearby town. Well, I shouldn't say it was nearby. It was nearby, relatively speaking. It was two hours away. It was in Regina, and there was a, a little gospel mission there that a group of us students went to share the gospel and to serve soup and everything. And so after we had served the soup and, and, uh, and presented the gospel publicly, and I, I had the job of preaching that night, I sat down at the table with one of the, one of the homeless guys who was there eating. And this guy had, if he hadn't showered in a day, he hadn't showered in two months. And his hair was knotted and it was greasy and a long, gnarly beard with creatures living in it of all sorts and uh, clothes on that hadn't been probably ever washed since he had picked them up. 
And this man lived on the streets and he came to the gospel mission every once in a while. I sat down and tried to talk to him and he wouldn't respond at all. I tried to make small talk. I asked questions. I shared the gospel a little bit and asked more questions and he wouldn't respond to me at all. So finally, kind of in frustration, I kind of got up and I moved on to somebody else. And later on, I was talking to the, the guy that ran the mission there and he said, that man that you were talking to at first, and I said, yeah. He said, he's a concert violinist who used to play with the, the big orchestra thing right here in Regina. He could have made millions. He was one of the best known players in all of that, in all of their uh, musicians. He is talented beyond anything you have ever seen in your life. And now he is unrecognized, unknown, a no-name man sitting in a gospel mission, eating free soup. And it was almost unintelligible. He, he, he wouldn't talk, and the man said when he does talk, even though he has that masterful ability, when he does talk, he's almost incoherent. Does favor go to men of ability? One of the things I love to do as a family, I don't want to get off on too many stories here, but this is another aside. One of the things I love to do as a family is watch America's Got Talent because you have people there that have absolutely no name and no renown at all, and they step up onto the stage. Some of them look like complete clowns, but some of them have these, these abilities and these skills that just blow your mind. And Deidre and I were sitting there watching it the other night, and there's a man who sings in the subway, and he has for years, and he stood up there on the stage, and he's and he just sung his heart out, and it was beautiful. And I turned to Deidre and I said, can you explain to me how it is that this man, nobody knows who this man is, and yet Bob Dylan can sell out concert after concert all over the world everywhere he goes. How is that possible? Bob Dylan. That's how he sings. Why anybody would pay a dime to see that, I have no idea. Absolutely from my perspective, no talent or ability whatsoever. And then this guy who sings like an angel. Nobody knows his name. Is favor to the men of ability? Not always. I used to have a car that sounded like Bob Dylan and the <laughs> mechanic had no idea what was wrong with it. Favor is not to the men of ability or to skill. And sometimes the most able people are completely unknown. Completely nameless and faceless to the world. And yet they have skills and abilities that you think they should rise up through the ranks. This person should be known around the world, and yet they're not. And people are known around the world who have no skill whatsoever. All right, well, we'll Beyonce on to the next point, since we're talking about that. <laughs> From a human perspective, time and chance overtake them all. And this is just Solomon's way of saying that in all of our human calculations, in all of our human equations that we might have, there are two things that, that come into the mix that mess it all up and for all of our calculations and all of our expectations, it's time and chance. Now, by chance, he's not talking about random chance, uh, something that is outside of God's control. Solomon's not describing that because he has already affirmed several times that over all of these things, the sovereign hand of God rules. We've seen that previously in Ecclesiastes. When he talks about time and chance, he is talking about the unforeseen events that strike everybody that mess everything up. Now, you expect that this is going to happen and your quarterback goes down in the first quarter and he's out for the rest of the season, that's a chance event. Chance from the perspective of humanity, that the lineman rolled into his leg and snapped his knee, but not chance from the perspective of God. It's chance from under the sun's vantage point, but not from above the sun. From above the sun, it is all under the providential sovereign hand of God. He rules all of it. He reigns over all of it. He controls all of it. It's all under his providence and his purview. There is nothing that strikes him but from as a surprise, but from our vantage point, it's just chance. It's the roll of a dice, right? We never see it coming, even though God sees it coming. So these things do not necessarily happen the way that we might initially expect them to happen, and all of that is because time and chance overtakes them all from the human perspective, even though from the divine perspective we say that that is not the case. 
One of the things that, that comes into the mix, not just time and chance, but what Solomon describes in verse 12, death. Death comes in, and death enters into this equation, right? The, the runner may die before the race, so the race won't go to him. The warrior might die in the midst of battle and end up losing the victories because of that. Death can come in and keep the wise from earning their bread before the bread ever has a chance to come up to them because of their wise decisions. Death can come in and, and seize upon the discerning one and take from him what his discernment ought to bring him. Death can come in and spoil it for the man of ability as well. Just before he becomes to be, uh, gets to be popular and well-known, death comes in and he's gone. And so nobody hears about this person who had such tremendous skill and ability. Death comes in and seizes upon us and, and crunches in on us. And, then, and Solomon uses two analogies here from nature. Look at them in verse 12. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and a bird trapped in a the snare. There's something that both of those illustrations have in common. number of things that both those illustrations have in common. First, neither the bird nor the fish will see this coming. Neither of them expect that. The fish is swimming along, not realizing that it's in danger at all, until suddenly he realizes he's swimming closer and closer with all of his buddies, and it's, it's hard to even move, and then he's drawn up out of the water. And so it is with the bird, walking along, long, looking for his seeds, looking for his, his food, and he doesn't even see it coming upon him, but suddenly he's caught in a snare. And so it is with us. So it is with our death. It seizes upon us. The, the, the net of death which gathers us all eventually into Sheol is tightening upon all of us moment by moment. And there is going to come a moment and a moment in time and it might happen suddenly when you are suddenly taken from this world and seized upon by death. And it takes everything from you. Your skill, your wisdom, your ability, your discernment, your might, your strength, your work, your family, everything. It robs us of all of that. So death is one of those unexpected or chance occurrences, even that's from the human perspective, but not from the divine perspective, that threatens to undo all of our doings and take and seize everything from us. Time and chance overtake them all, and death is the sudden and ultimate game changer. We do not know our time, and that's Solomon's perspective by using the analogy of the bird and the fish. It comes suddenly, and you don't know it's going to happen. You're driving along, you look down at your phone for a moment, you look back up, and you have about a third of a second before you slam into the face of a semi. Okay? It happens suddenly. You lie down in bed at night, and you wake up in eternity. You have a stroke. In a moment, it changes everything. These things happen suddenly. This is the reality of life. That's one of the, that's one of the frustrations of life in a fallen world. So what do we do as a result of this? Well, Solomon doesn't commend fatalism. He doesn't suggest that we say, oh, well, whatever. I'm just going to, since it's skill and ability and wisdom and, and, uh, and hard work and none of these things matter, I'm just going to take back everything I said in verse 10 about working hard and diligence and applying everything. He doesn't do that. He's not undoing what he said in verse 10. He wants us to work hard at all that we do and apply all of our might to it. He wants us to do that, to apply all of our mental and physical abilities to it, knowing that it is uncertain. Solomon doesn't then say, well, take back what I said in verse 10 about living with all your might. Instead, he commends to us wisdom, not fatalism, but a path of wisdom. We are to instead apply wisdom in our lives and have discernment, gain wisdom, and walk in the path of wisdom. So now Solomon gives to us an illustration in verses 13 to 15 of the, of the uncertainty of life. Now watch this illustration. Verse 13, all this, also I came, this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. I want you to notice here, Solomon, uh, in giving this story, he's doing two things. Before we read the story, in giving this story, Solomon is doing two things. First, he is giving us an illustration of what he said in verse 11, that the battle is not necessarily to the warrior. Second, he is going to commend to us wisdom by showing us how wisdom ended up delivering somebody or a whole city of somebody's from an invading force. So verse 14, there was a small city 
with few men in it, and a great king came to it and surrounded it and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So here's the analogy. Notice there's two, there's two conflicts or, or two contrasts that Solomon is drawing here. First, you have a, a small city and a great king. That is a, a contrast of insignificance with prominence. The king was a prominent one. He was a well-known one. And then you have this very small city. And a small city was a city without any defenses. They might have had a wall around them, a stone wall that would be for their protection, but they certainly wouldn't have had any kind of a standing army or any kind of a trained uh, militia type of people to fend off an invading force. They were a small city. And, and this great king comes against them, and the great king has an army with him. They build these large siege works against the city. And what does this city have? Just a few men that is in the city. So now you have a contrast of strength with weakness. The king is prominent and he is strong and the city is insignificant and it is weak. And you and I would look at that and we would say, what possible hope does that city have of standing against or withstanding the attack of that great king? But Solomon says, here is the, the deliverance, verse 14, or verse 15, there was found in it a poor wise man and he delivered the city by his wisdom. In ancient wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs, you will see connected, not necessarily poverty and wisdom, but riches and wisdom. Proverbs makes that connection. Wisdom literature typically did. They made the connection between somebody who was wise and somebody who had this world's goods. And that's what Proverbs often describes. The wise man will see the fruit of his labor. The wise man will do this and will benefit from it. The wise man will accumulate wisdom. That's the connection that's made in the book of Proverbs. And though that is what might we, what we might expect, it is generally true that wisdom brings certain financial rewards. It's not necessarily always the case. And so here Solomon couples wisdom with poverty, which is something you don't expect to see in wisdom literature. But by telling us that this man was poor, Solomon is doing a couple of things. He is reminding us again of the truth he stated in verse 11, that bread is not necessarily to the wise. Here is an example of a wise man who didn't have bread. He was poor. The second thing Solomon is doing there is he is assuring that we understand that what delivered this city was not wealth, it was wisdom. In ancient Israel, if you talked about somebody being a wise man, the assumption was he was also a wealthy man. But Solomon tells us he was wise and he was poor so that you and I would not assume, oh, the wise man had wealth and therefore it was the wealth that delivered the city. No, Solomon is commending wisdom. This wise man was poor so that you and I might understand it was not by his wealth that he delivered the city. He delivered the city by his, by his wisdom. Now, how did he do this? Look at, look, do you notice all of the anonymity of this story? Some people think that Solomon doesn't have, he's making this up. I think that, and a lot of commentators believe that this is an actual historical event that happened here. And there are a couple of examples from the Old Testament um, that Solomon could have had in mind here. Maybe Solomon knew who this wise person was. Maybe it was someone against whom Solomon had come as the great and mighty king, and he went to conquer them, and somebody did something inside the city that, that ended up delivering this city. Solomon probably had some specific incident in mind, but he doesn't give us any of those details. He doesn't tell us who the, what the city was. He doesn't tell us the name of the wise man. He doesn't tell us the name of the king. He doesn't tell us what particular instance this is that he has in mind. This is just something that he saw, something that he observed, and it impresses us. Now, why, is, why does Solomon not tell us who the wise man was? Because, verse 15, no one remembered that poor man. He delivered the city, and nobody remembered who that poor man was. He was forgotten. He should have been honored. He was a man of ability. He should, have, he should have gained fame and renown and wealth as a result of this, but nobody remembered him. I'm sure that for a day he was hero, right? Does everybody realize in sort of, uh, 
breathed a sigh of relief. Oh, okay, the, the invading forces have gone away. The city was delivered. All hail Joe Smith. What a great guy he was. Hero for a day, famous for 15 minutes. But eventually they don't remember him. They don't appreciate what he did. They don't even remember the specifics of the situation. And before a generation or two goes past, they're all enjoying the blessings and benefits of of freedom and prosperity that they have in the city. And they're not even aware of the fact that old Mr. Wise Man Joe Smith, who lives down in the ramshackle hut on the corner of of First and, and Cedar or whatever it was in those days, we have all that we have because of what he did 40 years ago. Nobody remembers that. He's largely forgotten. We understand what that is like because we have done the same thing with a whole generation of great people who have ended up fighting back fascism in our own day, right? We've largely forgotten the lessons of the past. We forget the heroes of the past. That's what makes history so interesting. You read about people whose names have been lost and you realize how, what great things that they did for a group of people. We forget the benefits. We forget the people who secured for us the benefits that we enjoy today and their names are lost to history. We do the same thing today. So this wise man, he is forgotten even though he had delivered the entire cities. Here's the benefit, or here's the wisdom and the lesson that we learn. Wisdom provides a value and a benefit. Does that mean it's going to be remembered? No, because fame is fleeting, and folks are fickle, and they forget, they take it for granted, they take advantage of it, they don't pay attention to it. They go on with their lives, but yet wisdom still is commended here, as you're going to see in verses 16 to 18. Wisdom is still better. Now look at verse 16. Look how Solomon commends wisdom, and he he gives to us three better-than Proverbs. He is honest with us and tells us that there are two things, two weaknesses that wisdom has, and he tells us what those weaknesses are. But notice the better-than Proverbs, verse 16. Wisdom is better than strength. Look at verse 17. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war. Three better-than Proverbs where Solomon is commending to us wisdom as the better alternative. It is better to all other alternatives. So in an uncertain life where things don't come out the way that they you expect them to, here's an example of that uncertainty. A poor wise man who delivered an entire city, and yes, he was forgotten, but wisdom is still better than all three of these things. Wisdom is still the best way. So look what he writes, beginning in verse 16. Wisdom is better than strength. It's better than strength. This is exemplified of the story. Who was the strong one? It was the king with the siege works and the mighty army. He had the power and the strength. Who ended up winning the day? Or what should we say ended up winning the day? It was wisdom. And so brains turn out being better than brawn. Right? Matthew Henry in his commentary writes this. A prudent mind, which is the honor of a man, is to be preferred before a robust body in which many of the brute creatures excel man. A man may by his wisdom affect that which he could never compass by his strength and may overcome those who outwitting them who are able to overpower him. It's kind of 18th century language, but here's what Matthew Henry was saying. The brute beasts demonstrate to us that strength is not better than brawn. Strength is not better than wisdom. There are all kinds of animals out there that we are stronger than, or that are stronger than us. Right? Bears, rhinoceroses, elephants, all kinds of animals like that. Apes and orangutans. They could mangle everybody in this room. They're stronger than we are. But we are able to subdue all of them, put them in cages, laugh at them, throw them peanuts, even hunt them down and kill them. Why? The application of brute strength? No, that's not it. It is our mental ability, our wisdom and our intellect that gives us that advantage. And so Solomon says, in that way, wisdom is better than strength. Strength strength doesn't buy you those things. Strength, brute force itself, does not move the rock. It's the wise man with a fulcrum and a lever that moves the rock. Strength, brute strength itself, does not make airplanes fly. It is wisdom and intelligence that makes airplanes fly. So wisdom is better than strength. 
even though that wise person is not heeded. Look at the end of verse 16. But the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. So yes, wisdom is better than strength, but the wise man still is not going to be heeded. He's not listened to. If there's anything that is a commentary on the fallenness of humanity and our darkness and our depravity and our utter stupidity, it's that verse right there. Right? Wisdom, as beautiful and valuable as it is, is not heeded. There's a reason it's not heeded. Look at the next comparison that he gives, verse 17. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Your translation may say the words of the wise spoken in quietness. It can refer to either speaking in quietness or hearing in quietness. But the idea is that the wise person doesn't need to shout to get his point across. And that quiet wisdom, either spoken quietly or received quietly, is better than a ruler who shouts among fools. And I think that the picture that we are supposed to to have here is not that the, the ruler is the great king who came against the city. I think that the ruler that Solomon has in mind here is the ruler of the city itself. And he is surrounded by all of these foolish people who are shouting at him and they're shouting back one another and they all have their ideas and they're raising their voice and it's getting really heated. And in steps the wise poor man who just speaks his wisdom. And that little nugget, spoken in quietness, heard in quietness, ends up delivering an entire city. We tend to think that words spoken loudly sound wise. Right? You understand that it's not always the loudest words that are the wisest words. Do you like one of the, do you like those news programs where everybody sits around the table and shouts at each other until the loudest voice is heard? I'm, gl- I'm glad I'm not the only one that that. There's a market for it, obviously. I mean, because like every news program is that, and, and we often think in our own culture and our own society that the most bombastic voice is the wisest voice, that the person who can shout the loudest insults, the best insults, and, and be profane to people and to do it loudly and to raise his voice, that that person has all the answers and that he will solve all the problems. Wise words are not the loudest words. If you doubt that, just turn on the view. Never a worse demonstration of utter and complete folly that I've seen in all of my life. I would rather gargle shards of glass than listen to five minutes of that. I don't know why we waterboard terrorists when we can just expose them to the view. The cackling nonsense that goes on there in five minutes is enough folly for a lifetime. It's horrible. And we think that the loudest voice is the wisest voice. That is not true. It's the quiet voice. See, wisdom is attractive not because of its volume, but because of its virtue. That's why it's attractive. You say, well, Jim, if it's attractive, then why is it not heeded? The end of verse 16 says, the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. They're not heeded not because they are not spoken loudly enough. They're not heeded because it's wisdom. And foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. And foolishness is bound up in the heart of lost humanity. And for some odd, curious reason, lost man loves foolishness and we love the way of foolishness and we reject the path of wisdom. And listen, standing in somebody's face and shouting at the top of your voice, biblical wisdom, does not make that wisdom any more attractive. It makes it sound foolish. That's why wisdom spoken and received in quietness is better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Because shouting doesn't make wisdom better. Just makes it less attractive. There's an attractiveness to wisdom, not because of its volume, but because of its virtue. Now look at the third better then. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Sinner is better than weapon, uh, not sinners. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. This is also exemplified in the illustration that Solomon gave to us. The mighty king with his siege works, 
came against the city with all of his weapons. The city was overwhelmed, and one poor man, by his wisdom, delivered that city. His wisdom ended up being better than the weapons of war. Now, this is not Solomon commending some sort of uh, disarmed pacifism. He's not suggesting that the Bible is opposed to using weapons to defend ourselves, to defend our loved ones, to to uh, even wage a war. That is not what Scripture teaches. That not what Solomon is talking about here. He's just saying that in this instance, this illustration demonstrated that right here in that instance, wisdom ended up triumphing over the weapons of war. How valuable is wisdom? It is better than the shouting of rulers. One poor man, better than the shouting of rulers. It is better than weapons of war. It is better even than strength itself. Wisdom is valuable. And therefore, we ought to pursue it. Wisdom is better than weapons. Matthew Henry writes this, What a great deal of mischief... Oh, before I give you that quote, look at the very end of verse 18. One sinner destroys much good. Now, this is the second weakness of wisdom. The first one is in verse 16. The words of the poor wise man are not heeded. This is the second weakness of wisdom, and that is that one sinner can destroy much good. Is wisdom valuable? It is. It's precious. It's great. It is the way in which we ought to walk. It is God's gift to us. It is a good thing. But how much wisdom, how much folly does it take to nullify a lot of wisdom? Just a little bit. Just a little bit of folly is all it takes to nullify a whole lot of wisdom. How much folly does it take to ruin a mealtime with a whole family? Just a little bit of folly of a fool. How much folly does it take to ruin a Thanksgiving meal? Just a little bit. How much folly does it take to ruin the ministry of a church? To ruin any kind of a ministry? To ruin somebody's life? Listen, young person, it only takes a little bit of folly, one mistake, one night, one stupid decision that you will regret for the rest of your life. How much folly does it take for you to regret one decision for as long as you shall live? How much folly? Just a little tiny bit of folly. One decision, one night, one drink, one bad accident. That's all it takes. Johnny Cash has a song that he sings. And I don't even know what the title of it is, but it comes up on my Pandora station. And basically, the, the gist of the song is this. There's a man sitting with his rifle out hunting or whatever out on a hilltop, and he sees a man on a horse riding down through the valley below, and he takes aim on the man and puts the crosshairs on the man just because he's playing. He's just kind of goofing around. He's, what would it like to have a human being in my crosshairs? And so he, he puts the crosshairs on the man, doesn't realize that there is a, a round in the chamber, and the gun goes off, and the man falls off the horse. He's completely stunned by this. It's, it's an accident. It took him by surprise. He didn't realize that that was going to happen. It's just a foolish mistake. And so he drops the gun and he runs away and he tries to hide. And eventually the law finds him. He fought the law and the law won. That's a different song. But it, the law finds him and they bring him to trial. And he stands in the courtroom before the woman whom he has widowed and the children whom he has made into orphans. And this man is weeping and he laments it and he, he hates what he has done and he is crying. And the judge finds him guilty and they take him out and they hang him. Now, what's the good end of that story? There is none. It's a Johnny Cash song. Johnny Cash songs are like the book of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing positive in any of them. But that's the whole point of the story. This one man's one moment of indiscretion, one foolish mistake, and he regretted it for the rest of his life, which ended up being short. How much folly does it take to ruin all that good wisdom? Just one little bit of folly. Just a little, like a little leaven, leavens a lump. One little foolish decision spoils everything. And the next pair, uh, the next proverb that Solomon gives in chapter 10 verse 1. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink so the little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. He's, he's saying the same thing in chapter 10 verse 1. Ignore the chapter division because that verse really goes with what we're talking about here. Though well, we're going to start with that next week. A little bit of foolishness outweighs wisdom and honor. You can have all this wisdom. It is great. It is good. But it can be spoiled by one sinner who just spoils so much good. By one 
by one act of folly, one act of rebellion, can destroy everything that a lot of people have worked for. There's danger in that. There's wisdom in that. So are we then to throw up our hands and say, well, then what's the point of wisdom if it has these weaknesses? No, we ought to pursue wisdom and love wisdom and long for wisdom and seek after wisdom and hear the words of the wise spoken in quietness and listen to the people who have gray hair among you. Unless they're my age, then they have gray hair way too early. But listen to the ones who have gray hair or no hair among you. They're wise. They earned that no hair and gray hair at a great expense. And they have wisdom to teach us. And get wisdom from Scripture and the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And ask God for wisdom and pursue wisdom. And Scripture says we are to mine for wisdom as we're mining for gold. Because wisdom is more precious than jewels. Wisdom is more precious than treasures. It is valuable beyond description. It's better than strength, better than weapons of war, better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. So in a life that is uncertain, what do we do? We pursue wisdom. We apply ourselves to wisdom. That is the way in which we honor God and fear God and keep His commandments. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we are so thankful to You for giving us the words of Scripture which are so instructive to us. Because we have Your Word, You have taught us all things that we need to know, sufficient for all of our life and all of godliness and walking with You in humility and in truth. And we thank You for this precious gem which is Your Word. Make us good stewards of it. We pray that You would give us wisdom, help us to seek it, help us to hear the words of the wise that are spoken in quietness and to not pay attention to the shouting of a ruler among fools. The voices of fools tend to drown out everything around us, and it is sometimes the only thing that we hear, but we pray that you would tune our hearts and minds and our ears to hear wisdom and to heed it so that you might be glorified through us and that we might live in a way that is honoring to you in this very uncertain life. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.